Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast. So Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. He's the officer who survived, but only just. Detective Sergeant John Bredder lost litres of blood when he was stabbed by child sex offender Nick Newman. Newman was well-trained in martial arts and weapons. He once threatened a young girl, saying he'd hunt her down and would shoot her in the face, the inquest was told. He'd been on the run for several days. When police received a tip-off, he would be at the Maroubra Junction Hotel on Australia Day 2018. 
strap yourselves in for this one because it's a hell of a story from a hell of a storyteller. John Breeder is the kind of bloke actors base their hero Aussie cop characters on. He's handsome, he's funny, he's charismatic, and most importantly, he's a very good operator. There's not much that gets past him. An alleged sex offender by the name of Nick Newman tried to get past him in the beer garden of a pub in Maroubra one night in 2018. It didn't end well for either of them, but there's only one of them still around to tell the tale. Breeder has one demand of us, and that is that we use this opportunity to promote blood donation, and that we remind all of you and ourselves to get in touch with the Red Cross and donate blood as soon as we all can, and if possible, consider becoming regular blood donors. In Australia, we can do that by going to lifeblood.com.au. The reason for John's passion for this cause will become apparent. I ended up doing 25 years in the police. Joined in 1997, worked at Camp CLAC, which is in southwestern Sydney, which was quite dangerous at the time. Did GDs there. Wonderful people that I work with. I can't praise them enough, the people I work with and learnt so much from the people that worked there because it was a dangerous time in the early, late 90s, early 2000s in that area, southwestern Sydney, with drugs and gun crime and different gangs that were in the area at the time. But the people I worked with at KMC were outstanding. And then from there, just, you know, I went into detectives, enjoyed detective work. And then just went from there, from detectives into the local issues in that KMC, then went to Middle Eastern crime and then just worked through the ranks and became a sergeant. Worked back again at, left me Ox, worked at North Sydney in detectives again, just to slow down a bit because I've been there too long. You got to move around. I always say, please, you got to move around. You got to move around, otherwise you can get stale. And then that's when I started to think about child abuse. And I, I worked at Leichhardt LAC as a team leader. That's where I got my team leader's job, and in property crime. And then after I did my stint there for three years, then I, that's when I became interested in child abuse work. And then I started in 2014 there at child abuse. The teams that do work in child abuse are the best detectives. In New South Wales and Queensland and Victoria, they have their own squads in relation to child abuse. They're the best detectives in the country, without a shadow of a doubt, because the way they work and the way they speak to children, having to, because you're giving it your best, because these are pedophiles. You don't want to mess up, you want to do the ultimate to try and get these people off the streets and put them before the courts. Tell us about Nick Newman, the offender that you were going to pick up that day. He, he's just one of the classic cases that we get when I was at Child Abuse Squad, every day. I mean, New South Wales, for the since I was there, every year in New South Wales, the, the squad itself arrests about 700 to 800 people a year. And it hasn't changed. It's still like that. I still speak to people that work there. And it's still the same. Did you have kids at that time? I, I, I do. Yes, I've got two kids. Uh, they were quite young when I moved into that area. And and the majority of the people that offend are known to the victim. They know the victim. There needs to be more stories, more exposure, more preventative work. It's never on the news, yet it takes up a lot of our court time. It's mind-blowing. The day-to-day work and every day these unique jobs come in, like Nick Newman, just one classic case. His case is a domestic violence matter. That's domestic violence. Whether it be sexual assault, still domestic violence. He used to beat his wife, beat his children. It's DV. It's a DV matter. And DV matters are the most dangerous jobs for police. I did not know that. 
Oh, the, the, any police officer would tell you domestic violence is the most dangerous. You, you don't know what... Because when you get there, there there's... The officer being called for a reason. They're in a rage. They're angry. And most of the shootings that happen in this country, across Australia, are domestic violence matters. What about later, like when you're turning up to something like this? So in this case, this offender was not at home. You got a tip off that he was going to be for a short period of time at the pub with his friends. Were you expecting in that situation when he's not in right in the middle of a domestic violence dispute? No, but he's, I mean, the, the story with with Nick Newman is that uh, he had offended against one of his children. She had reported it to Child Abuse Squad at Penrith. Uh, they took a statement from her. It was then investigated. Then uh, there was a number of serious offences that you know, oh, I can't talk about because it would blow your mind. Then he became aware that he was wanted, so he's on the run. And he'd been on the run for some time. Uh, before I got involved, and we sort of came involved only on that day because we were where where I was. I was the team leader of a response team at uh, child abuse, and actually we were at the time amalgamated with sex crime, so we were the on-call team. And we had become aware, myself, Tim Carey, and Ben Anderson, two of my detectives, had become aware of his location through an informant. Uh, there was a lot of background work done during the day because we found out where he was. Uh, he actually had, the informant had made contact with the officer in charge who, they were out at Penrith Way, their team leader, and they contacted me and I I called him and he said, well, this guy's wanted and we knew he was wanted for all these sexual matters and we were able to speak to this informant and he told us where he was and he'd only be there a short time so we had to, we had to move quickly and that was in the Maroubra area. So I uh, rang my two detectives and we met out in the Maroubra area and then I just waited for the phone call from this informant who told us where he may be and he's on the run. So we're, police don't realise that, and, and, I, and I said to the two officers, detectives that were with me and I also informed my bosses that we needed to do more with this guy. He's running around on the loose and no one's doing anything. He's just a serious child sex offender and there's no resources being put into this at all which was disappointing because if this had been some gang member, we'd have everybody looking at it. But because it's a child offence matter, it's it's given limited resources. We don't do enough in relation to the child abuse matters and we focus on the wrong things, I believe, in this country. I've worked in Middle Eastern crime, gangs. The amount of resources we put into these investigations, I don't, I, I'm not saying not investigate. All I'm saying is we investigate and then take it as far as you can, then move on. Because we put too many resources, I think, into investigating these matters where they go nowhere. And I've seen it, I was there for six years. Where these other matters where child abuse and these are the important things to people. These are children. 800 offenders a year, every year. And it will happen next year and the following year. How, How do you stop that? That day that you went to Maroubra, was it just you and the two detectives who went? Yes, yes. No more backup than that? No, we had no other resources. There was no nothing allocated to us, nothing. And because of the urgency, we didn't know where it was going to be or if it was going to happen. It was just, we got the phone call, he's going to be here, can you be here? So we rushed to that location. And then as when we got there, that's when we were notified that he was inside the pub with the informant. So... 
we don't want to lose him. No. And how many other people was he there with? I believe he was there with two others. Once I determined that he was where they were from the informant in the bar, in the pub, in the, I think it was the um, smoking area out the back, he just said, we're out the back. And just, just and I just said, well, what's he wearing? What's he got? He said, he's just sitting here with us with a bag. So we rushed to that location, parked out the front, called off. So then we, we had him inside and we had to make a decision. So I've got to make a decision. What are we going to do? We, do we wait? Do we, try, do we wait for other police to come? He could come out. Do we surprise him? There's all these... This is the thing. You've got to make these decisions within, you know, five seconds. Okay, what do we do? What do we do now? What decisions do we make? I can't let him leave because if he leaves we, and we lose him and he goes... And the history of this, this guy was that he was also wanted to harm his family. That's right. He'd made threats against his family. He, he, had, he had made threats, wanting to kill them. So this, again, another domestic violence. Do we want another DV murder, which happens every couple of days in this country? And having known that after the events, he did want to go and kill them. He had told a few people he was going to go and kill his family. And that was his ultimate goal, was to go and kill the family. And then whatever happens, happens. So the three of us have got this person who wants to go and kill his family which happened, we see it all the time, what are we going to do? Well, now we have the opportunity to do something about it and not let it happen. We had to go in and we tried the element of surprise because he had, he had a bag. We didn't know what was in the bag. Uh, the informant told us there was no, notified there any risk, so we thought, we'll just, we thought he may run because he wanted to run away. So we thought he's going to try and run. So the plan was, I'll just go in and confront him. He tries to run, we'll just, I'll just take him down, job done. And that's, that's police work every day. Go and arrest a guy. So the plan was that I'd go and confront him. I'm the team leader, so I'll go in first. And the other two were going to follow me in, and we'll just take him down, and the informant and so forth will just move to the site. It sounds simple, doesn't it? It sure does, yeah. <laughs> and I've, been, like, I've, I've made hundreds and hundreds of arrests. Never had an issue ever. Never, never a job gone wrong. But unfortunately, uh, things happen, and that's policing. It's like anything. Things can go not your way, and unfortunately, I wasn't told of certain information about this this fellow that you know police are overworked. Again, it's police not blaming anybody, but it's the system. Police again are overworked in this area of child abuse squad. I just when I remember walking, going, this doesn't feel right. Like because there was so many, the tables were really really close, and they were like those hard tables you couldn't you can't move them. So I remember just walking straight in and yelling out, Newman, and he sort of looked at us. And as I approached him, as, and when I say, oh, this, this happens really fast, this happens like within three, four seconds, I grabbed him, went to try and take him down, but the table was there in the way, and he was sort of on the, near the seat with those hard tables, and, it was, and I sort of grabbed him to throw him to the ground, and it happened so quick, bang, bang just, whoa, I knew something had happened that got me, you know, on each side, just under the ribs. And I remember just feeling instinctively just pushing my hands out and pushing him back and going, whoa, and then just moving back. And then Tim and Ben were behind me. And I remember just saying, oh, just shoot him because I could feel this sharp pinching pain just on both sides. And I knew I'd, I knew I'd been struck twice. 
I could just feel it, just like a stitch type thing in your stomach. And I just said, shoot him, shoot him. And as I moved back and and then they confronted him and he, I, I think he went with the knife at them as well. And so yeah, within their rights, they had defended themselves and defended me and did what had to be done and, and, and shot him. And he died at the scene. Uh, he went down. I just remember thinking how loud the no- it was. So loud. The noise was so loud. And I remember rocking back, going back as they dealt with him. And as I moved back, there was a little little seat. And I, I saw the boys taking care of him, and I knew I was safe at that stage. And I remember sitting back, and I just and I had the radio on my on my on my hip. So I grabbed the radio and I threw it to Tim. I said, do you need to call this in ASAP? So he calls the signal one, which is an urgent job, and police and ambos, you can hear the sirens coming from everywhere. And I just sat down on the, on the, on the step. And I just, I just remember thinking, oh, what happened there? How did that happen? Just because it happened so quick. And I remember looking down and just down at my stomach, and I could just see the blood start to to come out and I had a white shirt on it too at the time and it was just my shirt started to get the, all the blood on it and I could just feel the, the pinching pain inside my stomach on either just under your ribs on each side and I remember just thinking oh god and the boys were taking care of him and I saw that he was gone and I, I lay back and I remember just looking straight up to the ceiling and just thinking okay I'm done I'm going to die here because I've been to so many jobs where, and you read so many jobs, people get stabbed in the stomach, in the torso, you, you don't live. The, the chances of living are very slim. And I just said, I, oh, I'm, I'm going to die here on the floor. I remember saying I had a good life. Yeah, I had a good life and okay. And then I remember just closing my eyes and then something just sort of clicked I just remember seeing my family and then I just went, no. Something clicked inside me and I went, no. And I sat back up again and I went, right, what do I need to do? What do I need? What do I need here? Okay, I can't move. I can't, can't do anything. And I'm big on military stuff. I like the military. I was almost going to join the army. And I remember a military term, do whatever you can where you are with what you have. Okay, I can't move. I've got my mind. I've got my mouth. I can talk. And I remember going to jobs before where people had been stabbed. You put pressure on wounds. So I think I remember thinking, righto, I need to put pressure on these wounds. So I started pushing myself. Like, righto, start pushing. Okay, okay, start pushing. And then I'm like, and then this a guy stuck his head in through the door. The door was on the side to the the beer garden. And I saw him. I said, hey, buddy, can you help me? I've, I've been stabbed. I need to put pressure on my wounds. Come over here. So he runs in and. I read that. I read that you were directing your own triage before. He had this. a schooner in his hand at the time, and I remember him walking in with a schooner, and and he's put it down, <laughs> and he's he's putting pressure on on the right hand side, which was the really bad side, and then I think the club manager came in as well, and I asked him. I said, "Do the same on this side." I said, "So I got these two guys, two big guys, just putting weight on my wounds, and I felt, I felt all right." I felt fine. I was like, here I am. I'm on the floor. They're holding the pressure down. I'm just waiting for him. People are running in. It's like there's people coming in from everywhere, guns out. I remember seeing a bloke I knew that came in, and I'm like, hey, that's Anthony. I know him. I'm like trying to say hello, and and they're pushing down on the wounds. And then 
Oh, everything's happening so quick. How much of that do you think was um, because now we know that the blade had gone in right up to the, the like the entire blade had gone in several times. Your kidneys were affected, your liver, everything. So what the right-hand side went through my liver, my urinary artery, diaphragm, kidney. Lung, lung got a nudge. And, and, and the lung. That was the last thing that got hit. All on the right-hand side. That was all on the right-hand side. The left-hand side didn't get anything. So do you think that pressure, did it actually help or was it psychological? I believe it did. That- well, well I, think, I think at the time it did because it yeah. was stemming the blood loss because it went through my kidney. So your kidney controls, moves the blood around your body. So the guy was pushing really hard. And then the ambos, I remember just lying there and, the, you know, there was commotion going on. There was a lot happening. There was people running in and out. And I'm on the floor. And then the, I remember the ambos coming in. Soon after, the ambulance were pretty quick, and I actually spoke to the one of the ambulance guys came to see me, and they were in the area. They were around the corner, so they were there really quick, and they got me on the gurney, started doing their business. I was in the back of the ambulance really quick, and I remember thinking in the back of the ambulance they were you know asking me questions. I remember I just remember speaking with them, asking certain questions. Are you allergic to any, all the standard questions they asked? They had, I think it was four of them in the back. Uh, when they were working. So I was in the back of the ambulance and they're, they're putting lines in, they're putting, I think they were putting in adrenaline uh, to keep me going. And I just remember thinking at the time, oh, shit, I've got to ring my wife. Shit, who's going to tell her about this? I've got to tell her I'm okay. You know, I, I need to ring her, but I, you know, I, I couldn't get access to any phone. I, I had nothing with me. I just, they threw me in the back and off I went. I just remember the, the ride. So the St. Vincent's is, Maruba Hotel is south of St. Vincent Hospital. So it was about a, probably a 10 minute ride under police escort, because I remember seeing the police cars blocking the traffic as we headed, because it was Australia Day, so it was a busy day. There was people everywhere. I mean, as conscious as you sound, as much as you're saying now, I remember this, I remember that, and it sounds like you're, you know, chatty and, you know, it sounds like you're very in control. The surgeon, Emily Granger, she says that when she got the call, she was the message she got was there's a copper in here who's been stabbed. It's very bad. We think he's going to die. Can you get here as fast as you can? I was dying. Yeah, I was dying there, but I didn't think so. Yeah, like I was still going. Yep, yeah, I'm on the way to hospital. I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm, I don't, you know, I've got two stab wounds, but I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. So I'm on my way to the hospital, and I remember talking to the ambos. They were brilliant, doing their job, asking me questions, and they got me to the hospital really quick. And I remember coming out the back. And I remember seeing the sun and then I remember going into the emergency door and that's all I can remember mm. at that point. But apparently I was still conscious when I was in the ED room. I was answering their questions when I was in the ED, but I can't remember that at all. And then, at, so, so it's Australia Day, so there's no one in the hospital of um, experience. So they've got just a junior registrar on there, the emergency doctor. And it's dire straits. Then from information that I've received from, from doctors and people that didn't know what to do. So they're calling. So they they ring. Emily Granger was, I think, on call. So they get the call. She says in an article in the, in the Sydney Morning Herald written by Lucy Cormack, I was at home near the pool because it's Australia Day and it was a hot day. Everyone's having a good time. So she drives in like a bullet into the hospital whilst they're trying to treat me whilst I'm start, I'm losing blood like this. Well, they're trying to keep you alive until she gets there, basically. They're doing their best to keep me alive. So they're, they're administering blood. So the first thing they're doing is putting blood in. 
to keep me going. So that's what's keeping me going is putting the blood into me. So they're putting the blood into me. Emily Granger's on a way. They they go up the theatre. She comes in and they, they're trying to find out where all the blood loss is coming from and the doctors keep coming in. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think you've got a list there of the doctors. If you want to read them out, the doctor's names. Uh, Emily Granger, Rohan Gett. He's a trauma surgeon. Then we got the urologist, Raji Kuna. We've got the vascular surgeon, Anthony Grabs. We've got the anaesthetist, Andrew Jackson. And another anaesthetist, you needed two of them. Two, yes. Roma Steele. Yeah. So Anthony Grabs is a trauma surgeon. So he comes in as well to oversight everything. So he comes in as well. So he rushes in. So they call him. They're trying to find the bleed and they can't find it. Because it's just going right through you, basically. They're, they're putting blood into you. And, and it's then, just going out. Yeah. So it's like a blokey tap. It's just yeah. coming in, coming out. So they can't find the issue, so she cuts my chest open, just straight down the middle, down my stomach line, down below my belt line. So I've got a big line right down the front. So she opens my chest up to see if they can get to where the issue is with the kidney, but that's unsuccessful. And then so they open me up the other side, so they open up the – so I've got like a half peace sign. That's what it looks like on my body. Like a half peace sign. That's what I look like, the half peace sign. So (laughs) – I'm half piece, I always say. <laughs> so they're doing all this work. They can't stem the blood. 
And then Raj Kuna, who's a urologist, mm. he is a specialist. So I learned a lot about medicine and doctors yeah. during after all this because they have certain skills and you can't do certain skills that you're not trained in. So Emily Granger is a heart surgeon, but she can't deal with the kidney. Mm. So she's done her piece to open up the chest, to have a look. Then we've got Anthony grabs these, oversighting everything, and you've got all these other doctors in there. But Raj Kuna was called, but he already saw it on the news and said, oh, I might go in just to see if they need some help. So he drives in and gets to the hospital. And then they ring him and say, you need to come in. You need to. We need to get rid of this kidney. We need to take it out. As in now he's about to die. And he goes, well, I'm already here. I'm, I'm in the hallway. Mm. <laughs> so, wow. so this is this is what I'm talking about. It's just too freaky. It's like he goes, oh yeah, I'm I'm just outside. I've just drove down by my own accord just to see what was going. If you need some help, and so they call. So they like scrub up. So he run. He comes in. So the problem was that, and what I learnt was that if you have to remove a kidney, there's a there's a main vein that runs from your kidney to your heart. And the the problem is if Removing a kidney, you have to tie that off, but you need to do it in a way where if you don't do it right, you could die on the table because it's not done right. It makes you wonder how they could all fit, doesn't it? How they're all <laughs> standing around you. I mean, you're a tall bloke, but they're all, how they're are all, they, in all here. their hands in there, everybody <laughs> like Well, I think, I think that article actually shows a picture of them all standing around. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. As all this is happening, the anaesthetists are keeping me alive, the two of yeah. them. Two of them. Two of them. Okay, so they're, they're administering the blood. I didn't know that was their job until I read they're, about yeah, your surgery. Uh, did I, I didn't know that they, uh, they're they the ones that control how much blood's coming in. So yeah. they control everything. So they control the drugs. So he's administering uh, adrenaline as well at the same time. So he's uh, trying to keep me alive. And then as he as he recalls, he came to see me afterwards and said, oh, this is, what, this is how, what we did. We just kept giving you the blood and you just kept going. And he said, normally what happens is patients receive blood and then their body rejects the blood after a while because it's a foreign body and it like calcifies somehow and that's and then your heart just stops because it doesn't want to take the blood anymore it says it just rejects because it's a foreign i was living on none of my own blood it was just all foreign blood that's unreal and i think at this stage when raj kuna was on his way in they'd already lost 10 liters I think ten liters. That's a, that's. <laughs> it's hard to comprehend ten liters. Yeah, you ended up going through fifteen. <laughs> I mean, it was fifteen in total, and they're replacing his blood with all the blood products to save me through the anaesthetist, and they and they keep administering. I'm I'm still going, so they're happy doing that, whilst they try and stem whatever the, these issues are, and then so Raj Kuna comes in, removes the kidney, successfully ties everything off, and. At that stage, I was still on the border. They actually couldn't put me back together. Um, that's where Rowan Get came in. The trauma surgeon. He's a, a, the expert in putting people back together. So they left me open effectively for about 14 hours. So they put or packed me up with packing and put a, like a tape across the top to seal it. So I was still open. God. Yeah, I wish I, well, I I do now wish I'd seen pictures. You had a photo of that. That's amazing. How long till your family heard he's made it? He's made it through this bit. Backtrack. So when I'm in on the way to the hospital, phone, it's, it's manic. There's people ringing. There's it's, news is out. Who is it? What's going on? All my different friends are finding out. 
text messaging. It's like a, a big network. Who was it? What's going on? You know, everyone's out drinking and partying on Australia Day at 3 o'clock because I'm having at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then my boss rings my wife and she didn't answer because she doesn't answer his calls for some reason. And I told her, don't answer his calls. So he then has to ring a friend of mine who then rings another friend who sends her a text message saying, answer his call. At the time, they had coordinated a police car around the corner at my house to come. As soon as she found out, they picked her up and then drove her to St Vincent's. And the duty officer stayed with my kids whilst my mother-in-law came to look after the kids. So she arrives to the hospital and doesn't know what's going on. They haven't told her anything. Just he's been in an incident. He's in hospital. He's been stabbed. What did she think? If that were me... Well, she, thought I known, I was, she thought I was dead. Of course she did. That's what I was about to say. I've known enough coppers' wives to know that if you get a phone call from the boss and a car arrives at the same time, it's not great. Yeah, and they're rushing her in to the hospital and then... To make it even worse, she's met by the priest at the door. Oh, Jesus. So Christ. she just yeah. thinks, you know, this is, it's, he's done for. The yep. priest is here. No one's told me anything. They were going to walk me in a room and just tell me it's all, all done and dusted. It's all finished. But no, I, they said, God. no, no, he's, he's, he's in the operating theatre. And the, the operation went for six, about six hours. I was in there for six hours. So about probably 9 o'clock, 9.30, they'd finished. And then I went to ICU. And then the next day, they put me back together. So they sewed me back up the next day uh, on the Saturday. And I was in ICU. And I remember waking up. I think it was Tuesday. I woke up. Wow. For four days, I was out. And that was still critical. Like, they still were unsure what where I was, where I was at, was I going to make it? Could I walk? Because they didn't think I was going to walk because I think there was some arteries and, and blood that leads to the legs were affected and I didn't think I was going to walk. I didn't know that until later. Um, and then I remember waking up and I was on a ventilator. I remember waking up and this big hose down my neck and just all these, I had drains through my body. I had like three drains in my body and all these leads in my neck and in my arms and just everywhere. And I just couldn't move. And I just remember, and I was so high on drugs. They gave me um, ketamine. That's some drug. I remember not feeling anything, not even an emotion, because I was so high on ketamine. And I remember the doctors coming in and talking to me. And I, I didn't know what, what. I knew I was in hospital and I knew what had happened and I knew okay I mean I was and my wife was there and I'm like she started talking to me and she'd been there every day sitting by my side in ICU and the people in ICU again just you know I had a one-on-one nurse 24-7 just sitting there watching over me administering drugs pills whatever it was required and just I remember just waking up it was just surreal I remember I remember just looking down and going oh I cut my chest open yeah I remember just thinking what is that for (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was just thinking that, going, oh bloody hell, you know. And I couldn't. I remember couldn't even. I couldn't even lift my arm. I couldn't do anything. I just. And I'd been training really hard, and for months before that, and I was just. It's all gone down the tube now. <laughs> That's so funny. Attitude. Everything is gone. I, you know, the week before I was at the beach, and I was, you know, in the gym, and then 
here I am. I can't even I can't even lift my arm, and then and I, could, I couldn't even lift my arm. Out. And she said, "You're not allowed to lift anything more than a bottle of water, because your chest has been put back together, and I got all this wire in there still." And then basically, I had to just a get out of ICU because they want to get you out of there. So I was in there for four days, I think, after that, and just I remember the first night, and. My wife would come every day, and that was great. You know, it's good support. And I know there was I like, getting a lot of people telling me things, and and I remember just the first night I had woken up, and I remember I couldn't even move. I was like, and the pillow was in the wrong spot. You know, when the pillow is in the wrong spot, and I was like, I can't even move the pillow. And I think this is low. It's like that was the lowest point. I'm like, all right, this is the lowest point. Tomorrow I'm going to try and move the pillow. And I remember saying to the nurse, I said, oh, can you move my pillow? Because it's in the wrong spot. And I just felt, that felt so low. It was like, so then the, then the next day came and then they're like, oh, you've got to get up and sit in a chair. And I'm like, because you can't have, you'll, you'll get bed sores. Yeah, yeah. So they've got to get me in this special chair. And, they, and they're like, put me in a chair. I said, I can't even move. I can't even feel anything. I was just like, a, I was just like this big blob. And then I remember thinking, I just need my phone. Can someone get my phone? I want my phone. I want to get my phone to start just to start listening to things, music, people, mm. instead of hosp- you know, you can see other things happening in the hospital, and you can see that there's some bad news going on over in the other part of the hospital, and, and I remember just thinking, oh god, get me out of here! And the doctors and nurses would come, you know, the care was can't fault it. Ten out of ten, without a shadow of a doubt. I wanted to be able to message good friends and, and people that I knew because and I, it wasn't until I got out of ICU on the, probably on the Thursday, I think it was, I got out of ICU and I went, they took, put me to a ward in St. Vincent's in a private hospital in my own room and I remember they got my, I got my phone and I just remember ringing people and I rang some good friends and they're like, oh, Johnny, what's going on? <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, it's John. I had to quickly answer. I was jumping over everything to answer the phone because I knew who it was and I was, I'm sending people and I had so many messages so many messages on my phone and I'm, and that was good because then I just started texting people and once I was in the ward you know back to the treatment they put then I went from ketamine to fentanyl so now I'm on fentanyl so I'm, I've got this green button I'm pushing a button when I need pain relief because I've got all these staples down the front of me and I can't move and then you know, trying to even go to the bathroom was like an effort just to get up. Like It was like a process of turn your body sideways, put your legs out, get to the bathroom, go to the toilet. And, yeah, you know, everything was starting to... Because fu- the doctor's like, everything's functioning. I'm like, yeah, everything's functioning. Yeah, go, go to the toilet. Everything's good. Except for the first time I we went to the toilet, that was an experience. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't tell me about what could happen because, you know, the kidneys connect with your bladder and everything. So the bladder had blood in it. Oh, of course, yeah. So the blood had congealed. Ow. Yeah, it was like a stone. Oh, ow. And they didn't tell me about that. And then when the doctor came the next day, he said, you didn't tell me about that bad boy. Oh, like a cork. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like, Jesus. It was like, I didn't know what was happening. It's like that episode with Kramer when he goes to the toilet in Seinfeld when he's, he's pouring a pass <laughs> of stone. That's how it was. <laughs> ow. <laughs> But after that, it was good. It was like back to normal. And then just every day again, I was, you know, then they had a physio come up and I'm, I'm learning to just, because I couldn't breathe, they had to, they gave me a bottle of water and I had to blow in the water to inflate my lung. So I had to do this blowing test and I'm like, this is just, I'm blowing air into a 
bottle so my air, my lung can blow up so I can get inflated so it doesn't get infected. And like this is this is my exercise for the day. He goes, this is your exercise for the day. And we might lift an arm, and so we're lifting an arm like this. Well, is- it was like your full time job for the day at that time. Speaking of getting back to normal, did you want to get back to policing? Did you think you could go back to work ever? Like, what was your thinking about work at that? Oh yeah, time? my goal was I'm going back to work. Yeah, straight away. I'm, I'm like I'm going I'm going back. And then my wife's going, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah, I'm going back. I'm not going to be dictated to by a criminal or a pedophile. So I said, I'm going back. I'm going to get better. So it was like a goal. I was like, I've got to get better. But it was just, everything was just about my body. Like, I've got to get, I can't even move. Like, so when the physio would come down, I was like, now we're going to lift some arms. We're going to lift our arms up and down, you know, get breathing oxygen. And then, and because it was, I couldn't sleep properly because I get tired and sleep 20 minutes. But in the night, you know, they, they're checking on me every hour. So I'm up in the middle of the night. So I'm walking down the hallways, just practicing, like, just to walk to the next room. I remember the first day I just moved, walked to the next room next door and then walked back. And then I was like so tired, crashed, tired. Then I wake up, okay, I might go to the next door. And I had to carry a, anyone that's had open heart surgery, when their chest is open, they've got to carry around a towel. So I'm walking down the hallways with this big towel pushed up on my chest, you know, walking with all these old, the old guys, because it's the, I'm in the cardiothoracic ward with all these people with heart in problems and I'm I can't even beat them walking down the hallway and I'm like tomorrow I'll get him oh, I'm gonna chase him down tomorrow <laughs> so I'm like challenging myself to go to the next room then then I, there was a long hallway and I'm like I'm gonna get to the end of the hallway I'm gonna get to the end of the hallway by you know tomorrow afternoon so I'm practicing and all the nurses you know I say hi oh, walk to the nurses station said hello and then walked back that took like 20 minutes but I got there but it was every day and that's why I say just don't look at the big picture just what am, what am I going to do today and then we'll sort that out, and then tomorrow we'll, we'll grow on it, get better, and again, grow on it. And then every day I just got better and better at walking, and then, you know, lifting my arms up, and then I was allowed to lift more than a bottle, and then every day just doing something new. And and, and when I was in there, I started getting letters from the community, just people would – and I'd get these four or five letters every day, twice a day. Oh, more letters, John. And that was great. So I'd sit there and read them. I'd open them up. Got a letter from across the country. I got some international letters. People saying, "Oh, we, we're thinking of you." I've still got them all. There, I've got a whole box full, massive box, hundreds of all these letters from people across Australia, saying, "Well done, keep up the good work." Yeah, it's a John. It's a dead set hero copper moment, and we don't. Oh, no, no, no. No, but honestly, we don't get enough of those in the media. We, you know, we're very quick to put shit on coppers, and you know, very quick to talk about negative stories about coppers mm. and so you know i know you didn't seek this out certainly that's not what, no, we, what no, you look, were trying look, to achieve we're all we're all we're all human you know we're, we're all, you know, we all got kids and family and partners and we're people too and that's right but even before you were stabbed you know you're making the point that what you were trying to achieve that day frankly when we think about it, it was heroic enough. But you say coppers across the country do this every day. This is the job. This is what people do. And it's a good opportunity to remember that. Yeah, and, and that's why I say the people at child abuse, it's just, you know, I've got friends that still work there. And I I loved working there. and I loved the people I worked with and my, my two offsiders who were there, Tim and Ben. I loved going to work and, and doing the type of work that we did. And it's very, very re- rewarding. And I loved working with children and interviewing children. It's you, once you interview children, you become such, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, the people, the best interviewers in the police and to interview anybody is once you've learned how to interview a child, you learn so many different skills 
talking to criminals and just talking to people in the general public because you learn all these traits because talking to children is very difficult. I was going to say, that's an extraordinary thing to say. For you to say, I loved interviewing children because you weren't interviewing children about happy things. No, but I because I just wanted to be able to help them. Yeah. Instead of interviewing crooks all the time, you know, you know they just hate you or whatever. I used to like talking to kids because then, you know, I'd talk to them and you'd have a bit of a joke with them at the end and try and build that rapport. And Because to them, you know, some kids just come out and tell the information, some, some kids don't. And you've got to try and work that. But they make the best detectives. So after your rehab, which I'm assuming took months, really, um, and when you managed to get home, was it your decision to retire from the coppers? So what happened was, so after it took months and months of rehab, like, so I went from the ward, then I went to a rehab hospital for a week. Um, and that's when they took out all the staples. And I, they would help me there with walking and the training and the lifting things. And then it was 21 days when I got after I got home. And Emily Granger became my doctor at that stage. I would speak to her a lot about when I could do things. And she, was, she said, at a certain point, you can start swimming. So I started swimming and nearly drowned because, you know, I was still couldn't move properly. So, but after a certain time, I started swimming. She said, swimming would be the best for you. And then she said, and I said, my chest cramps. She said, your chest will be back to 100%. You won't even know that it happened. And then I started one push-up and that was so oh, shocking. And then, you know, tomorrow I might do two and then just build up and again, build everything up and just go to the gym and walking. And, and I was so focused on just trying to get myself better. And, and you know, the kids see that I was getting, because my kids saw me getting better. And, and the community was great where I lived. What happened was when it all happened, Two of the mums at school organised like food drop-offs. Of course. Got to leave a lasagna on the front porch. Of course you bloody do. So they made a roster. Yeah. This was with the best start. They made a roster <laughs> and you just put your name in and who would be doing the meal for tonight and they just drop it at the doorstep. Yeah, lovely. And it's just it's so – and I always say it's not just the bad things that happen, it's the good things that happen. And, like, the community just comes together and – yeah, they were doing things for my kids and, and people were dropping this food off because, you know, my wife's just coming in every day, just doesn't have time to be looking. You know, she, she's trying to look after kids and run a business at the same time. People are dropping food off and, you know, I can't, you know, owe these people a lot just to, to, that were helping us out. It's just these little things people don't know. You know, you never, you, no one's going to say anything about these type of things. But it's, it's just these little things that, that help. And you help my process and getting better and people would come over and want to see me and give me best wishes and every day just something new and it got fitter and fitter and better and then I thought you know I will come back to work after 18 months I think it was 18 months I decided yeah I'll give it a go and it was it was different things were different they just felt different but I gave it a go and I was fit enough and I had to go go through all the training again had to go and do a shoot you got to do a shoot and physical stuff so to show that you're capable again. And I passed all those tests. Yeah, and I eventually went back to work. When I came back to work, I got my old boss, who was my boss beforehand when I got hurt, he got allocated an old unsolved homicide. So he kicked it off with Detective Tim Carey, who was my other offsider in the hotel. So he's working with him and a few others. And then at the end of 2019, when I came back to work, I came onto that team. So it was just the three of us working on this unsolved homicide. 
And what happened was we ended up solving this unsolved homicide from 1988. It was the murder of Dr. Scott Johnson, um, who went off the cliff in Manly. This was after? Yes. So, wow. But yeah, so then, and then after that job finished, that's when I said oh, I've had enough. And a good one to finish on and you got to finish on your own terms. And, and I got to finish on my own terms and, and it was just another wow moment that I got, we're on this job and solved this job that couldn't be solved and we got it done. But I finished in February this year. Just I just got to look after myself. And like, like when it happened, I was seeing someone professionally to help me you know, mentally. Mm. And that's another issue that a lot of people have. You know, people don't reach out to get help. Oh, that's it. I've talked to many retired coppers about uh, mental health, obviously, but I was just thinking your mental health is very strong. You're very, it seems to me, you're very gregarious. You're very social, which is not the way I would describe a lot of former coppers. No, you've got to, be, and you've got, you've got to but you've got to work at it. Yeah. Like anything, you've got to work at it and seeing the right people and talking to the right people and having good friends and good people around you. If you don't have good people around you, and you don't talk to the right people, and that's when you can decline. And I've seen, I've seen coppers that happen to police officers. I've seen it happen. And I mean, all emergencies, ambulance people, firefighters, army, Absolutely. even tradies. Like I'm an ex-trader. I'm an old tradie. Mm. Yeah, it happens to tradies as well. And right. it's throughout all different industries. Doesn't matter. Just not just emergency services. But you copped a double bunger because you were a copper, and you were also very nearly a murder victim. Yes. So for you to not be suffering you know, terribly from PTSD is, is quite extraordinary. You don't seem to be to me. Am I wrong? Look, it does affect me sometimes, but I've just, you've got to keep pushing. You've got to keep pushing. I can't go around kicking stones all the time. I've got a family, you know, I've got good friends. They don't want me to be like that. I don't want, sometimes it's, I have, yeah, everyone has down days. As I always say, everybody goes through something and I've seen it. Like I've seen so many people go through different things and whatever happens to people, they that's how they Everyone sees, interprets it differently and something you and I may think is not so bad, but to them it's bad and you've got to reach out. And And I always say, people, why do people listen to podcasts? You tell me, why do people listen to podcasts? Uh, I, I think in particular podcasting is very intimate, private, personal medium and it's great storytelling medium. And I think listening to people like you tell your stories is very – people get a lot – out of it. Yeah, they do. And that's and that's why when I was in hospital and wanted my phone, because I wanted to listen to people's stories about how they got through things and what they did. And I'm doing this podcast to help people. Yeah. Uh, because people people like to listen to stories. And also I often hear will hear one or two things from everyone I speak to that really stays with me that's a different thing than I've heard from everyone else. You know, that's unexpected to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, even after all the interviews I've done, everyone will tell me something new and different that I haven't heard before. Yeah. You know? And that's and that's why I listen to, I listen to all different types of podcasts, different people, different different stories, because you always take something out of someone's story and go, you know what, that's a good point. And, and probably my point is, you know, you're going to hit tough times and being a positive person does, and this is where people make the error, doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen to you. It's just when you hit that hurdle, you're going to you're going to jump over it. And it could take a while and you could, you may have to change who, you know, some aspects of yourself. And, you know, I'm not the same person I was back before I got hurt, but I'm now trying to, I'm doing my best and I'm, I'm talking to the right people and I'm, and I'm now getting involved in different things and you got to see the good. And I see all this good stuff and now I'm involved in the blood drives with the blood bank yeah. in in New South Wales because 
because I took so much blood. It was 96 bags that I had used. Wow. When I got hurt, the New South Wales police did a blood drive straight after because they realised how much blood, and they call it the bleed for blue. And now that's gone Australia-wide, which is, it's in Victoria, it's in Queensland, West Australia. Every state does it, mm. does the bleed for blue. It's a competition run by all the police to see who can donate the most. How oh, great. And like, like <laughs> that is just because of what happened. Oh, something good come out of it. And I just look at that and think, wow, like, that's so good. You know, and I, I'm, going to, I'm going to Goulburn in the police academy to get the new recruits, give blood, to get them while they're still young. And that's who you want. You want the young blood. So get them to give blood. So donate if you can. Yeah, and it's one of those things that I always forget about. It's not until someone reminds me with it. Reminds you, and then you get, you, oh, I've got to give blood. Like, unfortunately, I, I can't give blood because I've only got one kidney. I'm not allowed. But to anyone listening to this, if you're listening, go and give blood for the first time. It doesn't hurt. They get you a cookie and an ice cream. and Absolutely. It's very quick. You get to, they treat you so nice, and the people in there are lovely. You know, Go out there and give blood. Yeah, you never know when you're going to need it. And there's so many different people need it for different reasons. People with cancer, childbirth, different reasons. There's so many different trauma. The low percentage is trauma. That's the, the lowest percentage. Yeah, yeah. I needed a little bit of blood after I had a, had my babies. So, yeah, you never know. You never know. So, but the majority goes to people with cancer. Yeah. So, it's. I mean, everybody knows someone in their life who's unfortunately had cancer. So, that's an important part. So, uh, but I hope... Yeah, in the day, probably the to finish off is, you know, you're having some sort of problem, go and seek help. A lot of people go through everything and we don't want people harming themselves or doing the wrong thing. I've been to those, so many of those jobs. There's always another answer. There's always another answer. So do something about it. And if it helps one person, then I've done, done my job. So thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honour. Thank you to our guest today, John Breeder. And don't forget to get in touch with the Red Cross about blood donation at lifeblood.com.au. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.